Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watt. Uh, once again, I am here uh, discussing some of the big events of the last week with Callum Roper. Hello there, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, as always. Ollie Walwin. Hello, everyone. And Bradley Alsop. Hi, folks. And this week we will be discussing or dissecting the uh, events of last week. This week we've seen uh, the uh, the radical protest movement known as Extinction Rebellion um, bring to a close their so-called impossible rebellion, uh, justified on the basis that now, uh, having said for so long that time is running out for humanity, time uh, essentially is out for humanity but uh, nevertheless we still have to protest to try and preserve what is left i believe that's that that's the plan that was the drive we'll see how effective that message has come across uh, through from the last week of protest uh, and we'll also be discussing something perhaps more material to the data more more immediately material to the day-to-day lives of people living in scotland because the Scottish government is going to trial having a four-day working week uh, across the Scottish economy, I believe, which is absolutely fascinating. It's something that's been talked about, speculated about for years in the age of uh, mechanisation, bringing uh, bringing a reduction in the number of necessary work hours. Um, This, I believe, will be the first government in the world to actually trial it on on a large scale so we'll be discussing that in a little while but uh just want to say for, first of all then uh, ollie how uh, how did this uh, impossible rebellion play out this week yeah so it's been, it's been going on for a couple of weeks now um i think it's the fourth major protest in their in their series that they've been running uh, what is it since 20, 2019 um mm. in general um it's been a lot less uh visible i guess you could argue especially in the mainstream media than the past um past protests um and and arrest numbers are down as well you know one of the um primary tactics is to to go in and um get themselves be be civil perform civil disobedience i guess and en masse um and get themselves arrested but arrest numbers i think i think it's around uh, 500 for the past few weeks but that is nothing compared to what it was a couple of years ago uh, back in April 2019 and uh, October 2019 as well. So in general, it's just been a lot less visible. Um, the police have been uh, very efficient at dis- destroying and spent essentially scuppering uh, Extinction Rebellion's plans. For example, on the first Monday, there was meant to be a giant pink chair, which was um, kind of put in the middle of Covent Garden. And the next morning, it, it was meant to be the, the centerpiece of the, the protest in general. The next morning, it was gone. So I think, in in general, the the um, ability for XR to engage with the wider public at large has has been, um, you know, it's been very minor compared to some of the past protests that we've seen. Um, so I guess it marks a, um, a complete shift in in the the Metropolitan Police's handling um, and the state's um, position as well. Um, it's been a lot more. I think you could say it's it's been violent um, compared to w- what we've seen in the past. Um, now, Extinction Extinction Rebellion protesters and activists uh, historically have been, you know, very non-violent, and that's how they 
uh, frame themselves as well. But this week, I think, has shown that uh, the Metropolitan Police has, you know, completely, completely changed. You know, they've been drawing batons on the protesters and they've been very quick to uh, use force, which is uh, is something which is quite controversial, um, I guess. The the dis- disproportionate use of force is uh, is something which has been thrown around a lot. Um, but you know, they, by, they, by the police, or has it been reciprocated at all? I think I think XR has um, has kind of accused them of using a disproportionate amount of force, and the police have def- defended themselves, saying that um, it's completely not okay for um, Extinction Rebellion to disrupt on that scale um, the city of London. But yeah, it's it's difficult, isn't it? It's the ongoing battle between um, any kind of uh, activist and protest and the police, but. In the context of the uh, police and crime bill, which um, is still, I think, it got pushed back in the end, didn't it? Uh, kill the bill after kill the bill, the protests. But you know that that massively impacts uh, the context of what uh, protesters are allowed to do in terms of um, executing their their democratic rights. And what what was this uh, this pink chair? What was that supposed to represent? <laughs> I actually don't know. I'm afraid. I'm sorry. Um, I don't know. They they have these uh, complex structures, you know, they use lots of scaffolding, stuff like that. I'm not sure. Um, I know quite a lot of what they've been doing this week has been framed around um, the financial kind of institution of London and, uh, you know, those that have a key uh, role in funding new fossil fuel projects. I believe one thing uh, which they, they source is um, if the, the city of London were a country, then it would be the ninth biggest CO2 emitter in the world, which is it, it's insane, actually, to think about. Just to put into context, uh, the way that they're targeting, you know, big banks like JP Morgan, uh, staging Dians and stuff like that. It, I think it's, uh, obviously, their the tactics, you know, they're quite out of date. They haven't progressed um, very much, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But I think that they're, they're directing it at the right people because these are exactly the people that are financing and, and fueling the the climate crisis hmm. uh, just to say the uh, the police crime and sentencing bill you reference uh, did pass the house of commons uh, on the 5th of july it's currently on its second reading uh, in the house of lords so it hasn't uh, it hasn't become law yet um bradley what's your what's your uh, take on all of this do you think that uh, is Extinction Rebellion stagnating at just the point where it's becoming more more relevant? Because, I mean, I, I know that speaking as a, a as a local councillor, um, a lot of what uh, Extinction Rebellion is has been saying or was saying a couple of years ago has percolated into uh, public policy. You know, um, many many local authorities have declared. Uh, a climate emergency and that's influencing the way that uh, we are um, you know implementing planning legislation for instance it's now a big big insistence that any new development should be zero carbon for instance Um, I I don't want to say that these protests are becoming irrelevant therefore but is there sort of a, a feeling from the public perhaps that you know they've made their point and and maybe that's why there's not as much interest in them well i mean i mean in terms of xr's aims they i mean they certainly the aims certainly haven't been met um you know they they've got uh 
their demands or they, they call for um, complete decarbonisation. Is it is it by 2030 or maybe even 2025, I think? Um, but obviously at the moment, the UK government's only pledged for 2050, haven't they? Um, so so it's certainly on that demand that's not been met. Um, and they also, of course, call for a, a people's assembly as well. Um, I, th- I think probably by random sortition. I don't know if they're going into much detail. Um, that, that basically put you know de- determines how how we reach that decarbonisation. So you know ne- neither of those um, aims have, have been met yet. So I suppose XR activists would say no one needs to be done. And actually, I suppose also if you look at it, you know Bor- uh, Boris Johnson's government actually does have not not to the level that XR would want, but they they do have compared to other you know major countries a fair, fairly um, fairly good pledges on climate change but the, you know the pledge is just the start really isn't it it's it's the action you put in behind it to actually achieve mm. that yeah um, and we're still very very far away from even meeting the uk government's pledges let alone the actually the more radical ones we need due, due to the the um you know the, the historic nature of britain's emissions you know the, the the international obligations we have we should actually be decarbonizing much quicker than 2050 um mm. so yeah so so there's all of that in there so i, I think many you know exo activists quite rightly would feel that there's there's a very long way to go um but before they can pack up shop you are right though you know i think the debate on climate has changed over the last few years um i think the general public is much more aware of climate change and actually much more aware of its urgency than perhaps five years ago uh, I think we have seen, you know, we've seen a wave of, of councils and, and companies and, and governments around the world um, declare a climate emergency. Um, I, th- I think Lincoln itself is, is pretty good on that. Um, you know, Lincoln, Lincoln City Council has declared a climate emergency, pledged to decarb, correct me if I'm wrong, by 2030. Callum, is that right? I yes, think. that's correct. Yeah. yeah, and obviously set up the Climate Commission as well. So actually, Lincoln is, is further along on, on a, a lot of the things that XR would like to see than the UK government is. Um, and, I, and I think XR, you know, has played a big part in general of this awareness raising amongst the public and various bodies. I think, yeah, the, the climate conversation has definitely moved on over the last few years. I think Extinction Rebellion and their protests have played a big part in that. I think um, the school strikes have played a part in that. Um, I, I think Jeremy Corbyn and the changes to the Labour Party um, for, for this country and, and Bernie Sanders in the US have played a big part in that and the movements behind them. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I didn't want to say it was just XR that's done that, but I think XR have been part of a, a, a range of different social movements that, that have really raised the um, climate change up the agenda. But obviously, there's a long way to go. I think in terms of XR's effectiveness and the police response, I mean, look, we're we're very clearly um, under a conservative government that, at, at the very least, has some authoritarian leanings. Um, you know, the the, uh, the the protest bill that's that's going through Parliament at the moment. Um, I, I think we're going to see a police response and a, and a government approach to protest that is increasingly hostile to democracy. Um, and not just XR, but all activists are going to have to adapt to that and, and be aware of that and plan for that. I don't think... I think that in the early days of XR, there was this hope that there could be quite a cosy, you know, sort of uh, polite relationship with the police. And in fairness, they did have that in the first couple of protests. The police weren't um, as, as hands-on in... in, in disrupting those processes that as they might have been through the protests throughout British history but clearly that seems to be coming to an end now that seems to be changing um, and XR are going to have to uh, at a tactics level adapt to that in some way um, I, I think I am a little concerned around the uh, 
the XR approach. Now, look, I, I love a good radical protest as much as anyone. Um, and I think in the, the first couple of waves of, of Extinction Rebellion protests, they, they did an awful lot of good and, and they raised the awareness of, of the public and policymakers to it. I'm, wor- I'm worried that maybe the same sorts of actions are going to have diminishing returns now. Um, that the, the, the spectacle and, and the shock of them is perhaps wearing off. And particularly, I suppose, if you live in central London, this is the third or fourth time you'll have seen this wave. So maybe the impact of that is is, is reducing. And I, I also think that the stated claim of XI, you know, that we, we want to cause enough disruption to force policymakers to make change. I, I've i never been particularly convinced by that. I think the process have been fantastic about um, hi- highlighting the climate crisis I'm less convinced that they are going to force the hand of policymakers on their own um, because I think there's an awful amount of vested interests in the fossil fuel industry amongst fossil fuel companies, uh, financial industry, many politicians. Um, any disruption that XR is causing in London is going to be dwarfed by the losses um, to the fossil fuel industry and, and its friends um, if they actually implemented what needs to happen. So... Um, you know, I, I think the only sort of you know mass civil movement that's going to actually force the hand of policy makers is some something like this, but replicated in every UK city along with a general strike and all that sort of stuff. I think is if we're talking about purely just taking to the streets to force the hands of policy makers, I think that's probably the level of things when you were going to need a general strike or something like that. Um, I, I don't think protest is the only route we need to go down. I think protest is important and it can help achieve strategic aims. Um, but but there's there's other things um, we can be looking at doing as well. Uh, partly that's parliamentary politics, um, but but other fields as well. So yeah, I think what I'm saying is I'm not necessarily suggesting I've got a, a fully formed you know plan for for bringing about uh, a green new deal and, and all the rest of it. What I am saying is XR maybe needs to start thinking about adapting its approach and that maybe the 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 spectacle protests that try to shut down central London and other places maybe those aren't going to have the impact that they first did. Um, when they first started doing them and that, and that maybe they, they need to adapt that approach. And and that might, might well be a conversation that's already going on in the movement. Um, but yeah, as, as an outsider that's not been particularly involved in, in, in these protests, it it does look a bit like how their first protests looked a few years ago and that not much has changed in their approach. Hmm. And I, I do wonder about it because I think one of the uh, people I think I've said before was uh, responsible for shaping um xr's uh, strategy was uh, w- was th- my theory is that it was a, a documentary that um lucy worsley made about the suffragettes um which sort of reef um because i think it was a uh, hundred years since their first protest i believe uh, a couple of years ago um and there, therefore there were a few other documentaries as well i believe that focused very strongly on their the suffragettes that its willingness to take unorthodox action and be willing to be arrested and then effectively to sort of make themselves martyrs um, in, in some respect. Um, lots of people, of course, are being arrested by uh, in these XR protests, uh, but it hasn't uh, having isn't having, uh, as you say, the same. Uh, public reaction as it were um could that be just because the media is uh deciding not to report on it 
Um, as you say, there's there's less spectral because we've seen it all before. Um, one thing to also, of course, bear in mind when when it comes to developing protests is that really the 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 action, the direct action that is taken, needs to have an impact on the people who are, in this case, the worst polluters. So. Uh, you know, and I have seen actions. I, th- I think taken uh, you know places like power stations and, and um, obviously fracking sites are always quite emotive as well because you can they're quite um, useful, I suppose, to the climate movement because you can link up with um, people who maybe wouldn't necessarily automatically align themselves with the with the, the left or with the environmental movement per se but they still don't want to have a fracking site in their backyard. That's, that's obviously quite useful. Um, so I suppose the, the, the question really is that, and, and I'm sure they're still doing things like that. I know they're still doing things like that. Um, the question is, you know, how do they uh, still draw attention to things? You know, cause the, the, we have to objectively say that their protests a couple of years ago were really, really successful, you know, hugely successful. Um, I suppose the question that they must be considering within the movement now um, is is how uh, to rekindle that spark. I suppose how how was do you, do you agree with that, Callum? Do you think that that's uh, probably the way they will be going into more smaller scale actions um, and and talking to policymakers, or do you think that they? will continue doing what they're doing because it, it sort of worked before. I, I think that they, they do need to, to evolve if they're going to remain relevant in the eyes of the, the majority of, of, of the wider public. Um, I think certainly what, what they're calling for, I, I completely support, but I think the way they're going about it now is, is actually uh, damaging the, the, the movement for, for a, a what we'd call a Green New Deal or a, or a radical approach to tackling the climate crisis that we face. Um, I think that everybody's that that have spoken so far, all of you have, have touched on the exact point that they need to evolve in order to remain relevant, that they need to have a look at what's worked and not necessarily just replicate it, but how do they get people talking is, is really the, is the first and foremost, um, I think should be their first and foremost consideration because once you work out how you get people talking, then you get action on the back of that. And obviously um, the first wave of protests got people talking. It was covered widely in the media. Um, it, it brought the climate crisis to the forefront of people's minds and it, it, everybody was talking about it all the way through to, to the power holders and, and, and the, the people in government, which is fantastic. But now we're at a point where the same protests or the same tactics have been used and the government doesn't really seem to care anymore. The, uh, they've got their, their agenda, their green agenda, um, with some, as, as, as Bradley identified, you know, comparatively to the rest of the world, it's quite a good first step, but obviously we need far more to be done. So Extinction Rebellion still has a lot of work to do in terms of getting the demands that that they're calling for that will help us tackle the uh, or or at least uh, help us dampen the impact of the climate crisis um, and, and and protect our planet for future generations. But how do we get the government to act now? 
I think that their tactics have to change. I think that the attitude that uh, being beyond politics is something that is incredibly damaging to them. Um, as much as I understand the sentiment that traditional politics and traditional power structures um, have have supported the, uh, the the pollution of the planet, um, have, have have essentially refused to engage with the with even the notion that there is a there is some uh, looming crisis. Well, the crisis is here now, and I think people are sitting up, and we just have to make sure it's completely relevant and it, it impacts everyone's life. And, and the minute you make it clear that that is the case, then that is where we can make a positive impact. I think what XR is doing uh, by stopping commuters getting into work, um, by shutting down the centre of London, it worked the first time, but this time people have had enough. They want to see what the the plans are. They want to see XR engaging with local councils. They want to see XR engaging with MPs, with the government, with all sorts of power brokers and all stakeholders that are, are contributing to, to the climate crisis or uh, potentially hold the, the the power to make a difference. So really, I, I think that they need to, to change their tactics and make themselves more relevant going forwards. Uh, otherwise, we face a, a splintering, I suppose, of, of XR and the different trails of thought around the climate crisis. Uh, in terms of some of the smaller scale actions, I, I think that actually that's that could be a way forward, more localised, less centralised, um, because locally there's there's lots of different things going on here in lincoln we've had uh there's there's a relatively strong xr movement here in lincoln people see them on the high street they held a carnival a couple months ago um and it, it gets people talking but then in other parts of the country um they've they've taken more different approach to direct action um lock, blocking access roads to mcdonald's processing centers uh uh, there was the protest in Canary Wharf, um, which which drew much condemnation, essentially smashing windows. Um, so there's different approaches. And, and I think that you need to make it relevant locally first, and then we can make it a, a national movement that will actually make a big difference. Bradley, you want to come in? Yeah, just to pick up on, on Callum's point about the, the beyond politics sort of tagline that uh, is, is often used in XR circles, I think... For me, you know, I think that that's probably the thing that, that XR needs to reassess and, and clarify exactly what it means. Because I mean, obviously, in one in one you know very wide sense, it, it's obviously not beyond politics because the climate crisis is an inherently politicised issue. There's no escaping that. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of people within XR that, that would accept that. Um, so I think probably what that is meant to mean is party politics quite often. Um, but you know, I mean, I I talked about a general strike earlier. Um, you know, I didn't mean to sound dismissive. I think it would be absolutely fantastic if we had a general strike um, around around the climate crisis. That that would be brilliant to see. Um, you know, m- maybe the next steps for XR is they need to start looking wider than than just their movement and connecting with other movements. There's plenty of other environmental movements um, and and uh, you know so movements fighting for for social justice. Um, so I I think it'd be a fantastic next step for XR to to sort of start trying to develop those links, develop links with trade unions. And, and actually assess what it wants its relationship to political parties to be. So I, I understand that the sort of sense of wanting to be um, separate from party politics so that you can attract people from, from all different groups um, and all different political persuasions. And I think also, you know, that, that there's a fear perhaps that if you're seen to be supporting one party or another, that you're actually just a partisan group and, and that your intentions aren't, you know, noble or, or whatever. So I, I can understand all those issues. And as Callum said, there's also a sense of, 
you know, the politicians from the main parties that we've got at the moment are the ones that got us into this mess. And that, that is true. Um, but I think I think we need a more nuanced analysis of it than that. Like, for instance, under the Jer- Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, clearly Jeremy Corbyn wasn't, you know, wasn't um, in any way particularly influential over the Labour Party whilst it failed to, to act on climate change over the last 20 or 30 years. And, and clearly he was offering something that, you know, fair enough, not perfect, fair enough, plenty of issues with Corbyn's Labour Party, but c- clearly he was offering something very, very different and radical with the Green New Deal compared to what had come from ma- major mainstream political parties over the last 30 years. So I think, for me, it, it, I struggle, and maybe it's just because I've been part of party politics for so long, but I struggle to I struggle to, 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 to see the, the, the relevance of a social movement that refuses to engage with any of that. You know, because at some point, the things that we need to change the climate crisis have to come from states. They have to come from state power, given the time we've got left and the resources that need to be mobilised. So if we're serious about tackling climate crisis, we have to engage with state power. We have to engage with who is running the government. Um, so I, I struggle to see a social movement that's going to achieve radical change on the climate that doesn't engage with those questions in some way. Um, that. That, to me, I think, is maybe a question that Exxon needs to ask itself. I understand all the reasons it's avoided party politics so far, um, and, and maybe party politics with Keir Starmer against Boris Johnson looks less attractive now as well. I get that. Um, but I I would like to see Exxon looking outward a bit more. Can it build coalitions with trade unions? Can it build coalitions with the social movements? Can it even consider some sort of influence on the party political process? I think those are maybe questions that need to ask itself at this point, because what, what we need, is a, is a mass uprising in civil society, basically, but also has some sort of parliamentary legislative arm to it as well. That That's what we need if we're going to tackle the climate crisis. Um, again, I, I'm not particularly involved in the movement at the moment. Maybe those conversations are going in and are going on in XR. Maybe we'll see things like that. I don't, I don't know. But it, for me, if, if I was in a, a strategy meeting, if XR had those sorts of things, because they're quite decentralised, I think. But if I was in an XR strategy meeting at a national level, that those would be the sort of things I would be saying we need to think about. Yeah, and you just um, reminded me of um, a book I was reading recently, um, an excellent book by a chap called uh, Michael Segaloff, um, called um, Resist, How to Be an Activist in the Age of Defiance. Very easy, very good, easy read. Uh, there's a forward by Owen Jones. Um, but one of, one of the things, the first things they it tells you to do or suggests you should do um, is basically... Um, draw a chart um with along one axis uh, axes uh, people who agree with you and then on the other axes the people with power um and you know write down all of those people so for example you know your mp uh, this applies to any uh, campaign so it could be mps plural if you're on a large scale um you know uh, local councillors business owners charities that sort of thing um, and basically try and calculate the sorts of people that you need to influence as your starting point and your campaign will sort of flow from there because you'll have to calculate the best ways of influencing those people, exercising leverage and so on. Really, really good book. Highly recommend it. Um, and at, at the end of the day, that just applies to uh, any campaign. And uh, as we said, I'm sure that um, XR are thinking about that now. I hope there are many experienced activists among them um so i'm sure we'll i'm sure we'll see great things from these uh from these uh from these men and women and um 
we will uh, participate in that, uh, I'm sure. Um, but thinking of radical changes uh, that may be happening, um, one of the things which might save us all uh, is obviously the uh, development of technology, changing working practices. We're still in a very 20th century materialist world, aren't we? The, the idea that we should all work nine to five, five days a week uh, in order to uh, acquire things which will make our lives better. Uh, and I think in this uh, climate change conscious world or increasingly climate change conscious world, um, that model is increasingly being seen, seen to be a little unsustainable um, and that uh, perhaps uh, uh, it would be nicer if we had uh, less things and a bit, little bit more free time, um, perhaps after uh, nearly two years of being um, separated or 18 months of being separated from our friends and family for so long, maybe we'll start thinking about spending more time with them. Uh, rather than working. Uh, and for Scots, um, very, very soon, they will now have the uh, opportunity, the opportunity potentially of being able to act on that change in culture because the Scottish government is taking the lead. They're going to introduce a four-day working week. Once upon a time, this was something that was complete fantasy, even something that was a little bit shameful. Of course, people might uh, recall the three-day working week of the 1970s, obviously introduced by necessity because of the miners' strike uh, and so on. Um, but now it's being introduced for very different reasons, uh, that being uh, principally um, not really because of the climate, but because many, many businesses are starting to realise that if your uh, workers are not having to drag themselves through a full full week in inverted commas, they actually become more productive. Um, study after study, I think, has shown that uh, that uh, people who actually uh, concentrate their work into a shorter time frame are actually much more productive. And the key thing here as well is that the main the main uh, scepticism that people have about having a shortened working week is that people have less pay and therefore be less willing to do it. But the Scottish government is insisting that there should be no reduction in pay. So uh, was it uh, Ollie, I think, who has uh, done a little bit of research into this, I, I believe? How, how is the Scottish government going to uh, achieve this during this trial? And is it going to change the way uh, world of work in the contemporary capitalist world forever. Oi. Um, sorry, it was actually Callum which um, proposed the issue, but I, I haven't done much research into how it's going to be implemented and, and the logistics of that by the government, uh, by the Scottish government. But I just I just thought it was interesting. Um, and I think it's something, it's almost like a, a collective awakening that's happened um, in the era of COVID, um, where, you know, there's been millions of people um, utilizing the furlough scheme and they've been off work and they're still getting paid a majority of their pay, which arguably I think they should have been paid the full, uh, you know, all of their pay, but you know, they've been paid, um, a decent amount and they've been off work and they've had a lot more time to spend with their, their friends, their family to maybe do hobbies that they don't usually get time to, to do, um, in the, the 40 or more working hour week. 
and yeah it's 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 almost shattered the illusion of of the the capitalist dream isn't it um which i think was largely left over from uh you know the working culture of the the 19th and the 20th century um i just i just think yeah this is this could be the start of our 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 um our sh- a social shift i guess in in working culture and it's really good to see the the, the scottish government willing to tr- trial something like this um, as for how it's going to be implemented, I'm not sure. Um, maybe Callum has some insight on that. Right, fair, fair enough. Um, we'll call Callum then. I, I only, only called you because you uh, had put your hand up, so I, I thought I thought it was you that had led on it. So my apologies, uh, Callum. You've done some research on this. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Perhaps you could talk to us about uh, yeah. uh, about uh, why the uh, why how how the Scottish government's going to hopefully make this trial work and uh, change yes. the way we live so the the the, uh, the smp had this as a uh, manifesto uh, pledge uh, in the elections earlier this year and, and and i think it's it grabbed a few headlines and if i remember rightly it was something that labor spoke about around 2019 as well as a potential policy or, or a direction that we need to go into um and and really the um the motivations behind it is actually looking at um, people being overworked because there, there is the assumption that the more hours you work, therefore the more work you will do. But actually there, there is a threshold where you end up being overworked, fatigued, more likely to go off sick, more likely to be stressed, stuff, suffering from mental health issues, um, physical health issues. So really that this is where the, the, the debate is, has been rooted. It's, it's in the fact that the traditional model of, of the more you work or the harder you work and the more hours you put in, the more you get out of it. That, that's been shattered by this. And so the Scottish government is, uh, is, is, is now proposing some trials to see how, how it will work. Uh, I think it's quite a large scale trial. Um, some of the things we don't yet understand is uh, how are they going to implement this in some of the more, uh, I suppose, sensitive sectors, uh, the retail sector, which, uh, you know, some people, uh, uh, there are seven day weeks there as opposed to the traditional five day week. Obviously, people don't work all seven days, but um, there is the the potential there to how, how do they structure weekends, whereas in, in some more, I suppose, traditional working patterns, you have a, a five day week and a two day weekend. So that that's something that they're, uh, they're they're currently toying with in terms of how do they work it around some of those sectors. Another thing is uh, zero hour contracts. How do you get around them? Obviously, we, we've all got our opinions on them and, and most of them aren't very positive. Um, but people working in the gig economy, how do you ensure that they have um, that they're subject to this and they're not um, subject to, to um, antisocial hours, things like that? As, and, and the four day week is, is used as a way to get around any um any commitments or, or, or the such like that. So they, they need to look at things like that, um, how it, it impacts rights of those so-called flexible workers. But I think that this is part of a wider review in terms of flexible working, remote working, working from home, hybrid solutions um, in terms of how, how we work. But the interesting thing here is that the four-day week trialed elsewhere, and um, I'm lucky enough in, in where I'm currently working, they're trialing a four-day week um, traditionally, we have, have had a had a five day week. Uh, that's been cut down to a four day week. We get Fridays off now. We work one hour extra a day, um, so it's a nine hour day, including an hour lunch. 
um, that's actually incredibly improved productivity. So the traditional argument is that why should we um, take a day off or give a day extra off for our uh, our workers because it will impact our profits? This is the perspective of a, a company director or uh, people working in the uh, finance department of, of some of these big companies that say, well, it, it will impact our output. It will impact our profit margin. Well, where I'm working, and obviously this is just one example, productivity's gone up, well-being's gone up, people are taking less days off sick, barring COVID, uh, which is a, obviously a big factor at the moment. The profits of the company are going up, they're, they're having their best ever financial year, and they've only started this pilot sort of after after the springtime when people were starting to come back into workplaces after that after that long lockdown. So that's an incredible turnaround. So already, again, we're shattering the, the traditional um, idea that the more hours you work, the harder you work for those hours, the better the outcome for the, for the company, certainly not for the individual, as, as we know. So the, it's an incredibly exciting time to see what will happen out of this, this essentially a, a statewide or a nationwide approach to, to introducing this, uh, this change. And, and I, I really am looking forward to seeing what will come out of it? The um, the uh, the Institute for for Public Policy Research has, has has released some stuff around this as well. Sort of, I suppose, with their their input into the trials and what they would like to see. They've also floated the idea of a uh, of a of a minimum hours clause. So to get round the the problem with with uh, zero hours contracts. So there is a requirement that a certain amount of hours have to be offered. Um, and things like that. So I think that there's some incredible things going on in Scotland at the moment in terms of how we have our relationship with our working lives and how that impacts our home life, how it impacts our health. Um, I think that obviously that it potentially there may be some implementation problems in some of the more, as I say, the, the more uh, even sensitive sectors like uh, in the healthcare system already under a huge amount of pressure, social care system again under huge amounts of pressure and policing and the like but i think that it's a really positive first step and i think that if this is a successful trial um we we south of the border should be certainly calling for this and as a, as a mandatory working right because i think that it, it can only benefit working people and it, and an extra bonus it also benefits the the businesses companies and organizations that hire these people so i look forward to seeing the results and uh I certainly think this is a positive step that we can take in this country. Yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, I think it's very exciting. Um, I'm not sure how uh, I'm not sure how we will get out to the uh, to the, the very reaches of the private sector, but I think the uh, as you say, zero hours contracts are a problem, but there are also alternatives. Um, and what part of it I suspect will be that once it becomes the norm to work four days a week then most businesses will uh, follow and adapt to that i think certainly in the hospitality sector where zero hours contracts are particularly prevalent um, it could be considered advantageous because in that industry you want your workers to be flexible because you can't really just work 
you know, Monday to Friday, because the, the weekend is the big period where most people are going to restaurants, going to pubs, going to nightclubs, you know, going to the cinema, whatever. That's when most hospitality workers, you know, work the hardest. Um, but then, of course, there's the, there's the rest of the week. So you need to have a, a, a flexible working workforce in that respect. So having a, a four-day working week actually kind of makes makes sense because it would make it easier to rotate your workforce. I think in many cases, because many hospitality workers work part-time anyway, you, you may already have that sort of thing uh, in place, although I think many would appreciate having uh, some sort of set of, of minimum working hours. Um, Bradley, do you see this this trial as uh, as successful as potentially successful? Are you are you thinking of packing your bags and maybe moving up to Edinburgh? <laughs> uh, Edinburgh's a lovely city, but I'll I'll be staying in England for the time being um, until we can secure a four day working week here as well. Um, you know, we, we, some of us are going to stay behind and fight for fight for it everywhere. Um, so yeah, I mean, I certainly hope um, the the pilot is successful um a a four-day working week you know for all the reasons that have just been outlined it's a fantastic idea um i think yeah i I think you know the the fears around lack of of of, um of output i think uh, you know answered around the issues around productivity less sick days um better mental and physical well-being all those sorts of things um and I think also, you know, you know, speaking as someone, you know, that actually really enjoys his job. You know, I I, I work for a charity. Uh, I I find my job quite fulfilling and and you know, intellectually stimulating and and quite enjoy what I do. Um, but but even I would welcome a four day working week. You know, you know, so I, I can't imagine what it's like for someone with a job that you know they, they despise and they're doing it just to pay the bills. Um, so I, you know, I I think I've, I can see the benefits of four day working week because actually. You know, we, we spend so much of our time working in order just to live. You know, Im- imagine the amount of, of c- control and the possibilities that could be opened up by by reducing the amount of time that people have to spend on work in their lives. Um, you know, even if it's a job you enjoy, you know, there's there's still other things you want to do. And you know, everyone I know says they never, you know, there's never enough time in the week to do what they want to do. Imagine giving a day back to people to spend on whatever it is they want to spend it on. Um, I think you know that that's an enormous rise in freedom um, and and human potential, and I, I think it'd be fantastic if we could do it. So uh, I look I look forward to seeing the results of the uh, the experiment in Scotland. There's a, a, a nice irony in a way um, that you know Jeremy Corbyn, when he was proposing a, a four day working week a couple of years ago, was absolutely ridiculed, um, and one of the arguments that was set against it was you know what would you do with the nhs um you know would the nhs become less productive and it's just such a a nonsense argument in the context of what we've just been talking about um because what do uh, nhs workers complain about the most well that they're overworked and they're stressed um especially obviously during the pandemic but generally speaking over the last 10 years um if you could put in place a system where health workers were working four days of the week, it would have the same productivity benefits than it that it would have in the rest of the economy. And, you know, in what better sector do you want the people who are ministering injections and 
you know, tying your bandages and, he- and healing your wounds and, and, and everything else that they do, in what better sector do you want those people to be uh, productive, alive, awake, happy people? Um, we often think that, and, and I think that the, the British public, any public really, um, if, uh, what's, there's no higher priority for them than, than, than healthcare, and rightly so. Uh, and so actually a, a four-day working week will, will would probably benefit uh, the NHS as well. I think that's a, an important point to remember. And it's also easy to implement because we have uh, a nationalised state service, albeit privatised behind the scenes and so on. Uh, but that's a, a, another discussion. And, um, and, what, and what a good time to, to think about bringing it in. Not that I expect a, a Boris Johnson, a conservative, well, any conservative government really, to, to bring about a four-day working week. Um, but, you know, w- with many sectors have, you know, people, even to this day, you know, people are still, a lot of people working from home. Um, so our relationship with work um, and and how, how we work, whether we're, we're offices or at home, I think all of that has been questioned in a way it hasn't been for some time over the last year and a half. So, you know, a four-day working week trial is, is now is probably a really good time to look at that as as work patterns and relationships to work have been thrown you know into a bit of chaos by COVID anyway. Not chaos, but you know what I mean. We've reevaluated those relationships and those practices under COVID. I think now would be a brilliant time to to try a, a, a trial a four-day working week. Um, but yeah, I'm not holding my breath to see it uh, trialed in in England anytime soon. Yeah. Well, here's hoping, eh? And uh, I think I'll probably be staying here as well for the time being to to hopefully see that implemented in the near future, all being well. So I think on that positive note, I think that's a good way to uh, end today's sesh, uh, as it were. Um, So I think it's uh, goodbye from me and uh, goodbye from Bradley. Uh, See you, folks. Um, Stay safe. And Ollie. Goodbye, everyone. Take care. And Callum. Goodbye, everyone. Stay safe, and we'll speak to you next week. Goodbye. See you soon. Join a trade union. Make sure that that will uh, push us even further towards having a four-day working week and saving the environment. Uh, And we'll see you next time. Bye.